Much like a majority of my pop culture knowledge, I first learned of Cape Fear through The Simpsons. Watching Sideshow Bob parade around as Max Cady had me enthralled and intrigued to the point of seeking out the original source material. I didn't go all the way back to 1962, but instead started by watching Scorsese's 1991 adaptation, which does what few remakes are successfully capable of, updating the original source material while managing to up the ante and remain culturally relevant to a new audience. 14-year prison sentence and nothing but vengeance on his mind, Max Cady isn't a man who makes idle threats, and we explore the extent to which he's willing to enact his revenge on today's episode of Midnight Flicks. The Midnight Flicks, a podcast dedicated to discussing movies relegated to a late night purgatory. I am one of your hosts, Pat Mitchell, and joining me on this cinematic expedition is Adam Walker. Adam, how are you doing today, my friend? Uh, hi, it me. I'm back. <laughs> it you. I it's good to be back with you again. I didn't quit yet. I know it's been a while. It feels like it's been a while, but you know, we, yeah. we, we be talking movies all the time. We do, we do, even if we're not doing it here, through the internet, through the phone. I watch I watch too many movies, I feel like. <laughs> right. I watch, I watch movies just, I'm just like watching, I'm consuming cinema just constantly, I feel like, to the point where it's possibly a detriment to uh, uh, my family and my marriage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, just... Pop, pop culture consumption in general is problematic for me. Like my wife came in the room. She's like, what the hell is this now? And I'm like, it's like, I'm not even super into it, but I'm like, you know, it's just a, a th- weird wormhole. I went down. So like, yeah, yeah. I am. <laughs> like no movie in particular, just like she'll walk in the room and be like, what, what the hell is this? And I'll be like, it's, it's where I am in life, babe. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, admittedly, I mean, I still watch a lot of movies. 
Uh, I will say there has been somewhat of a tapering off since I, you know, since I've, I've been in a relationship with Charlotte or just basically when I'm, when I'm single is when I'm watching a lot more, or at least what I'll do is when I was single, I would obsess over like a handful of certain movies and just watch them repeatedly. I don't really do that anymore. Yeah. And I think that's what I, I think lately um, I think that's what I've been doing is going into like almost like a single mode, uh, like single pat watching movies uh, where I'm like, <laughs> I, you know, sorry, babe, I got to watch, you know, every Tony Scott movie like this week. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. You haven't seen unstoppable, but I, I think you'll love it. If you just give it a try. She's actually, my wife is, is actually wonderful about watching most of these movies. Um, yeah. and supporting watching movies but I think I'm self-conscious about oh god I'm starting another Tony Scott movie she's watched two of them is she gonna <laughs> want to watch three in the same night I'm pushing it let's let's fucking push it baby but speaking of um, what have you watched lately that's that's been great or I've watched, not great I've watched quite a bit and I don't want to go I don't want to get too long winded because I feel like that's that's happened a few times there when we go into the movies we've watched lately discussion. But now I don't want to come off as uh, illiterate to current movies too much. But I think I indicated in a couple episodes back that I was definitely behind on the 2019 hot shit. So I've been making my way up been catching up so i finally i finally don't hold it against me whoever's listening to this i finally watched parasite but this was like a couple weeks ago at this point oh this is this is uh breaking news how 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 much did you love it i can't imagine that you didn't like it oh it was fantastic it's it have you seen the host i haven't seen the host yet but i've seen okja 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 and Snowpiercer. So I haven't seen any other any other of his movies. So I don't believe so. Okay. Yeah. So, but he I did love the like, host too. Yeah, I've heard it's really good. It's been it's been it's been hanging out in in, in the periphery of of watch uh, of lists of the watch list. Excuse me. So, anyways, so I saw Parasite. It was fantastic. I saw The Lighthouse. Also fantastic. But this is the thing. I will add this with the lighthouse because when you were talking about it um, a while back, this is my editorial because I think you said something about this, and I think Kyle might have mentioned something. I don't. I didn't find it to be a particularly Lovecraftian movie. I thought it was more. Oh, yeah. I thought it was more. It was paying homage to essentially just old timey sea. Uh, sailor myths and sin and uh you know more more of that i didn't really get the the lovecraft vibe yeah i mean i could see i i see what you're saying i yeah I, I, you know more of his, i'm trying to think of a lovecraftian uh short story or tale that i would I would relate it to, but I, nothing's coming to mind on the top of my head. Um, I know. Like, I, I, well, I will say, you know, and I'm not saying this is in your case or Kyle's, 
but I will say in general, I feel like the Lovecraftian adjective or connotation is thrown around a little too much willy nilly these days. I think anything that has this kind of sense of there's this like foreboding of the unknown to it, the spectral foreboding or, or kind of ancient, like indescribable presence automatically yeah. gives one have this, you know, inclined to say, Oh, that's Lovecraftian. So that's just my, that's my editorial on that. So I hear you. I, you know, I think I, I related to that because of like what you said, like it's a forlorn, um, very bleak mm-hmm. existing kind of movie um, on the edge of madness, which Absolutely. I think, I think that's where he, uh, where the description comes in is being brought to insanity, which in a lot of Lovecraft stories, it's uh, isolated characters being brought to kind of the brink of insanity yeah. or, or so. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, I see what you're it, the overuse of it since he's become more popular, popular um, in culture. Uh, I could see how that gets, he gets thrown around more than he should. <laughs> yeah. Well, you coming at it from that angle for sure. I, I agree that cool. That yeah. makes sense in that, in that regard. So We're on the same page. Yeah. So I saw those and other than that, as far as off the top of my head, I have, I, I, I checked off a couple more early Willem Dafoe movies off the list. Cause the, at the very, very bottom of my watch list, um, I think when I really started dedicatedly paying attention to what I wanted to go through on IMDb, I, I was just like, I think I was going on a, a Defoe kind of kick. So I was like, oh, there's a lot of Defoe stuff I haven't seen. So I just like racked up a, a few right there early on and I kept kind of ignoring them. But I finally was going through to get those off the list. So I saw The Loveless and I saw Light Sleeper and I'm not going to go into detail, but I'll say I was kind of whatever about them. But there you go. He He's an interesting guy. I'm I don't want to get into a, a Defoe wormhole, but right. uh, he just, his choices in movie, he just does whatever the fuck he wants. And and we, and people say that about a lot of actors or just um, popular people in general, he legit just does whatever the fuck role he wants. It's true. It, it doesn't, regardless of what it makes him, he's done the big budget shit from like uh, the Spider-Man, you know, that, mm-hmm. that sort of Hollywood garbage. And then, um, you know he's not afraid to just have his his uh, dick lopped off in a like a Lars von Trier kind of movie. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. He, yes, he's a uh, he's very adaptable. He's very he is he is, and he's good at playing. He's good at playing a freak, uh, and uh, he makes me uncomfortable in some movies. Absolutely, and that kind of is is a segue into tonight's movie, but. What I watched recently uh, was Night of the Hunter, and we talked about it um, here, you know, before we hopped on here. Um, And it's Robert Mitchum, and Robert Mitchum is also in the original Cape Fear. Mm -hmm. But just to give Robert Mitchum a little bit of love, he is great at just playing these 
vile human beings. He's so good at it. He channels into a deep, dark part of his of, of his own being that mm. is just so delightful. <laughs> yeah. Night of the Hunter is so terrifying. He's literally trying to kill children to to just obtain like ten thousand dollars. I mean, the general premise of it is there's ten thousand dollars that are hidden. These two children know where it is. He's trying to get it at all costs and will kill the children you know, as soon as he's done knowing. Um, And to parlay that into Cape Fear, his his depiction of Max Cady in the original Cape Fear is just so good. And I feel like it gave De Niro a lot, a lot to go with. And um, obviously we don't have the remake without it, but I don't even think we have De Niro's version of it without what Mitchum did with with the KD character. Um, so without further ado, should we get into tonight's movie, Cape Fear? Yes, let's do this. Counselor? Counselor? Could you be there? Could you be there? So, I guess a short synopsis, um, Max Cady, played by Robert De Niro, um, he does 14 years in prison for a violent rape, and upon his release, he uh, chooses to terrorize the public defender on his case, Sam Bowden, played by Nick Nolte, um, and Sam Bowden's family, wife, played by Jessica Lange, um, and his uh, teenage daughter, played by Juliette Lewis. That is the whole premise of the movie. It's a it's a vengeance movie. Yeah, um, it's revenge, and it's uh, it's nonsensical revenge. <laughs> it's insane revenge, um, and that's also the the basic premise of the original. So when it was adapted to uh, a 1991 Scorsese release, um, they kept almost the exact same premise intact. Yeah. Um, in terms of kind of thoughts when it came out, um, you'll be excited, and I'll save this for the end of our reviews category here, um, just to rattle off what uh, Ebert said. Cape Fear is impressive movie making, showing Scorsese as a master of a traditional Hollywood genre who is able to mold it to his own themes and obsessions. But as I look at this $35 million movie with big stars, special effects, and production values, I wonder whether it represents a good omen from the finest director now at work. (laughs) So a favorable review from Ebert. Um, I believe he gave it three out of four stars. But this was controversial when it came out. Um, So Terrence Rafferty of The New Yorker said, quote, a disgrace, an ugly, incoherent, dishonest piece of work. (laughs) (laughs) So not a lot of people were stoked on it. Would you be (laughs) would you be stoked if I told you I found a Danzig bit on this? You did. Kind of. (laughs) All right. I had no idea. I found a quote that Danzig talks about Cape Fear. He doesn't review it. Okay. Yes. I'm, 
Absolutely excited, of course. So he is, um, he's talking about wrestling (laughs) and modern wrestling. He's referring to a wrestler named Bray Wyatt. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. No, but I know Um, where you're going with this. this He's like a a juggalo, uh, uh, bayou dwelling kind of wrestler. Anyway, he, Danzig says, quote, there's so many great characters in wrestling right now. One of my new favorites is the Wyatt family. It's this Cape Fear meets Charles Manson thing. It's pretty cool. So that's a tease. I know he doesn't go into the Cape, but... He does reference Cape Fear and uh, lovingly in in terms of describing this wrestler. So I could only leap to the thought that he loves Cape Fear. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I I can't imagine he wouldn't. Um, the compl- I could see him totally being into it. The the complexity of Max Katie's character in the sense that he is this representation of evil, but this intellectual, but also, uh, master manipulator, master manipulator, but also, you know, coming from this, I would say it's almost like he's like a a Manson esque character. He's like a Manson type archetype where he comes from this seedy, you know, backwoods kind of world and is able to become a self-made, you know, intellectual type of man, but uses his intellectualism to, yeah, to further enhance his evil deeds and his manipulation. So. And Katie is simplified in, in his thinking too. It, Everyone needs to be a man of their word. Everyone, um, what, what you say and what you promise holds weight. And in the biblical, the biblical tattoos that he has and just his, his manner of speaking and going about conversing with other people, he's very much so about the vengeance that people pay when they don't honor what he thinks they should have honored and or promised. Yeah. Um, so it's a very old world in terms of, of, of that. Right. Um, old Testament. That, it, yeah, absolutely. Um, but without further ado, let's, should we get into the good, the bad and the questionable? Let's ramrod right into it. <laughs> Here we go. Let's start with the good. Um, so you're not handed um, an, an easy rooting interest in this. And I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to just like the mind hunter episode. I didn't want to keep talking about red dragon. I don't want to keep talking about the original, but I think it's imperative in, in some of these, in the context of some of these conversations 
in the original, you had a, a very much a rooted interest in Gregory Peck's character as Sam Bowden. Sam Bowden in the original is a family man and, and did not hide evidence. In fact, Sam Bowden in the original movie is not his public defender. He was a witness to the rape. Okay. Um, so he, Sam Bowden in the original sees Max Cady raping this girl and is the reason he goes to prison. He's not the public defender, although he is a lawyer in the original. The, the complexities that Scorsese throws into this is you don't give a, you're not given a, a rooting interest in, in either one of these. What I'm trying to say is Sam Bowden is a liar and a manipulator and an adulterer and a bad father and husband. Right. He's not those things in the original. So because of that, you're kind of, you're, you, you don't side with Katie because Katie is despicable, but Sam Bowden kind of sucks too. And I think that's great. I think that's great filmmaking because it's, it's not a, in, in just like this movie is, throughout it's not a black and white it's not a good versus evil it is shades of gray yeah well and it's funny that you mentioned that i would say that that might be you know also indicative of the time that it was adapted within also being that you know you have the original being during the 50s and this remake during the 90s did you have this period in between where filmmaking has you know, developed in a way to create more dynamic kind of character uh, <laughs> interactions like that and to develop, you know, more complex characters and to not, you know, we, we've gotten to a world at this point where not everything's black and white, whereas it might have been a lot more black and white to people in the 50s. You know, there was a lot more of a <clears throat> across the board, a cult cultural kind of expectation of what's good and what's evil. You know, we, we've got the Cold War happening in full swing at that time, you know, so we got the USA versus, you know, the Soviet Union, things like that. So, you know, the cops are the good guys, cops and robbers, this type of thing. So, yeah. Whereas by the 90s, by the time of the 90s, all of this gets, you know, more muddled and there's more of like a fluxus between, you know, what is considered good and evil and so, yeah, that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah, because we're talking 1962 to 1991, so almost 30 years, 29 years. Right. The, the scope of filmmaking in those 30 years has changed dramatically. But like I said in the opening monologue, what makes a great remake is making something culturally relevant to the amount of time that has passed and not just doing what the movie meant when it came out, but maybe reintroducing it to a new audience for what it could mean, you know, currently. Right. And Scorsese obviously does, does the shit out of that. He does a great job. Um, more good. Uh, Gregory Peck, Robert Mitchum and Martin Balsam all appear in the remake with prominent roles, not just cameos. All three of those individuals were um, in the original. And I love that they uh, that they appeared in this and not just in a cameo kind of role. All three of them had fleshed out roles. Yeah. Um, De Niro, this might be undercover his greatest performance of all time. And I, without hyperbole, truly believe this. Mainly, I think this mainly goes to the fact that I am not a huge 
Scorsese mafia mobster guy, a movie guy. That's not like my bread and butter or even something I, I I enjoy it, but it, it doesn't, doesn't really get me going. This fucking gets me going. I love De Niro in this. He is a fucking lunatic. <laughs> and and great. Like he and I don't even want to say this, but he takes like Robert Mitchum's performance is almost null and void with yeah. with how he approached this. It is utterly terrifying. Yeah, and I, I don't was, think he does this. He doesn't duplicate this again, ever again in his career. That's maybe true. Maybe a maybe Angel Heart, I, but th- this is ten times that. Right. Yeah, I will agree. And the thing is, with this role, it had such a. I feel like it had such a deep cultural imprint. You know. Yeah. Just that, look at the two reviews I read. Like, think of how split when this movie came out. People were like. Holy shit, how great, or what a disgusting piece of fucking cinema. (laughs) (laughs) Because it just, it just, it just really does prey on every aspect of bad venalness that, you know, can be, um, that can be analyzed in a man, in, in the, in the male, persona psyche yeah you know you've got a violent manipulative pedophile pedophile rapist essentially and you'd be surprised to know that in the original there is not they don't push it and like i said in the opener you up the ante on a remake you take kind of a bit you take a piece of what the original did and you up the ante on it on the original, he does. He says some creepy ass shit about the teenage daughter. Yeah, I I can't remember off the top of my head verbatim, but he was like, "Oh, I'd love to fucking, you know, butter my bread with that roll or something." He says something. <laughs> he says something terrifying, and he says yeah. it to he says, he says it, you know, to Sam Bowden, you know, as they're watching his own daughter. Right. Uh, but they take this. Uh, Obviously, more steps further. Um, yeah. yeah, the kiss scene between um, De Niro and Juliette Lewis is uncomfortable. <laughs> to put it mildly, I mean, it's really it's hard to watch. It, it makes difficult to. It is beyond difficult to watch. It is like I want to fast forward through this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you feel bad being like in any way a participant in this. This. Thing happening in front of you. <laughs> Absolutely, it's one of those things where it's like you know, it because it it puts those thoughts in your head, and you're like, Ugh, you know, <laughs> total creeped out vibes. Totally, yeah, right. <laughs> Jessica Lange's performance is absolutely wonderful. She does just such a good job. Speaking of uncomfortable, the arguing between um, her and Nick Nolte are genuinely fan-fucking-tastic in terms of, like, a marriage that's on the rocks and just, like, there's so much real anger and um, pettiness there that's, like, real. Like, they feel... That marriage feels lived in. Like, they are fucking married. Like, I don't feel like it's two actors performing. Um, it's wonderful. But Jessica Lange specifically, Nick Nolte does a great job, but 
Jessica Lang, I've loved forever. And in th- this is one of my favorite roles. She really just, just knocks it out of the park. Yeah. If you've ever experienced a modicum of the environment of a dysfunctional home or being the child of a dysfunctional uh, parentage, then yes, you, you felt this pretty hard. I did. <laughs> no, I don't, you know, no, no, no further disclosure in, in that regards, but yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I hear you. It, you know, it is. It, and you know, I grew up, I grew up with none of this and it made me like, I'm like, fuck. Like, <laughs> yeah. God damn. Mm-hmm. Um, Katie's wardrobe is just magnificent. At one point, he's wearing like a Hawaiian shirt and like a sailor's hat. And then when he does the strip shirt, he's wearing like, or the strip search, he's wearing like red tiger print satin panties. Like he is fucking, I I don't know what it is that I latch on to the wardrobe of these main characters, but I, he is killing it in this fucking movie. He's like a Bayou dandy. <laughs> yeah, that is a perfect way to put it. It's, I love it. Yeah, it's it's this it's this casual casual assemblage of of things that on many people, if you saw a guy dressed like that, you'd be like, "Wow, what a dork!" But on yeah, him, he, he it it works. Because like, the dichotomy between this like leisurely attitude that he presents and like the ultra violence that he's capable of. Yes. Uh, that I fucking love. Um, <laughs> the intro shot of Katie is so iconic. The, the, the ups, the extreme ups on all his tattoos and he's doing like, he's working out in his cell. I think he's doing like pull-ups or something, but that intro with that score, which the score is also on my good, um, is just absolutely, it's one of the, I can't even think of something else to compare it to, but it's one of the best introductions to an evil character that I can think of in cinema. It is so good. You, you don't even need to know what he did. He, <laughs> you're like, holy shit, this guy is jacked ripped and uh dangerous <laughs> well and and also when it kind of pans through his cell and you see yeah. you see his collection of books and the pictures that he has absolutely like he has a picture of stalin you know and then it goes into talking about later in the movie about how he was found reading nietzsche and, you know again further developing this, this idea that this is a, a complex dangerous individual did the uh, this this popped in my head when i was watching it did that uh introduction scene remind you of um either um manhunter or silence of the lambs when they do a pan of lector's cell they do a similar pan with lector's books and uh now obviously lector isn't like working out like this or with his shirt off but i love the the introduction to lector is very similar you see the books that he's reading you see the the organization of his cell uh, gives it kind of a window into his psyche as well similarly right uh that didn't immediately immediately cross my mind i tell you what does cross my mind is when I see that scene is um, did you ever get a chance to watch the Ben Stiller show? 
you ever watch any episodes? Not a, I'm not like super well versed. I, I'm familiar with what it is and have, have watched a couple episodes, but not since it aired. Okay. Well, they had one skit where they are parodying Cape Fear, but instead of Max Katie, it's Eddie Munster. Holy shit. <laughs> and Eddie Munster has been framed and put in prison. <laughs> It's like, I'm pretty sure this kid is called Cape Munster or something like that. <laughs> and so it shows that same exact mirror, same scene, but it's, it's Eddie Munster as an adult doing dips and just, <laughs> he's just ripped. Cause like Ben Stiller is a pretty ripped dude. So it's Ben Stiller playing. And, uh, so they, they, they parody it. They parody it that way, but that's, I'm sorry, but like that's all I could think of. Well, but that speaks to how iconic it is because it's also in The Simpsons. Yes, uh, the, he the sideshow Bob. They they do a they well they they parody a bunch of scenes mm-hmm. um, from this movie. But the sideshow Bob working out with the tattoos thing is specifically um, yeah referencing that scene, which is what I'm talking about. That scene is just so iconic, right? Um, I guess I'll get into some of these other, some of these other goods while, as we're talking about, but the only other one I really want to point out is this cocktail of whiskey and Pepto-Bismol is like one of my favorite things (laughs) I think I've ever seen in my life. He does it once in his office and you're like, what a quirky fucking weird thing. Then he does it when he's on the stakeout in the house. And I'm like, all right, This dude is, I'm talking about the private investigator, obviously, but for people that aren't well-versed with the movie, this private investigator does a cocktail of equal parts whiskey and Pepto-Bismol, just like, I guess, an alcoholic that like can't stop and gets like, like he's blowing up his stomach when he drinks. So he's got to mix it with Pepto. Yeah. That was so good. I I loved that little tidbit. Mm-hmm. What good do you have? Well, big good for me is the camera work in this. This has mm. got some amazing, very very distinct camera work. Uh, the quick pans between characters and like the the fast like close ups. That right there is very distinct. You don't see that in a lot of movies. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of nods in this movie to Hitchcock. There's, there, yes. There's, um, a, there's a gratuitous amount of Hitchcock uh, reference in, in the editing and the camera work. So, you know, I was going to save this for Wiki Wormhole, but I'll just bring it up now. This score is adapted from the original. Right. But... Yeah. They didn't, they literally adapted it like full bore, but they didn't have enough of the score because the remake is longer. The person that, that they had originally did the 1962 score worked on Hitchcock uh, scores as well. So they actually pulled um, scores from that were rejected scores from Hitchcock movies from this guy and, and placed them throughout the movie Additionally, with the original score that was in the original Cape Fear, just to round it out. But yeah, yeah, that Hitchcock shit is ever present in the original uh, Cape Fear is 
heavily Hitchcock influence. It it feels like a Hitchcock movie, very right. much so. Yeah, mm-hmm. I agree though. Scorsese does an excellent job of keeping it Scorsese and like nodding to Hitchcock throughout. Yeah, I would say of all of Scorsese's stuff, this is the most uh, representative of being a Hitchcock homage. And so, yeah, that's great to me. And and I'm not even, I can't even claim to be that extremely well-versed in Hitchcock. I know enough about Hitchcock's work to say that this is Hitchcockian in its nature. So, um, yeah, that's a good for me. Um <clears throat> Little little goods here is I like the uh, whenever you look to the television set in Danielle's room, there's some video that's kind of uh, representative been caught stealing, of, yeah. been caught stealing representative of the of the '90s and the fact totally that, with you. You know, she's like kind of like this, you know, rocker teenager or whatever. Um, there's another video that's this is a little bit more obscure trivia, but the. The video is by this uh, group called By God 20, I think. And they're like kind of like this like obscure industrial band. So, <laughs> so tight. <laughs> the fact that like there's like those references in there is pretty cool to me. And uh, I like that a lot. Um, uh, I like Joe Don Baker in this. And it's funny. He's the, the private investigator. Yes. Um, he does an excellent job. He does a great job. It's funny, though. Joe Don Baker will in a lot of ways be kind of like a butt of jokes to me because uh, I don't know how familiar you are with the, uh, the mystery science theater episode uh, where they watch uh, Mitchell. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and they just, they, they, they go in so hard on that movie and, and on Joe Don Baker, I guess to the point where like, it really pissed off Joe Don Baker. I didn't even make the connection. I yeah. whole, I, I'm like having a, an epiphany here. Yeah. So <laughs> I didn't, wow. Okay. I didn't even, <laughs> I think he does a great job. No, this. no, absolutely. Yeah. He does a fantastic job. It's a very even handed. We wouldn't uh, get the whiskey Pepto uh, cocktail without it. <laughs> Not that it was his idea, but still. Yeah. Um, what else? Uh, I like, uh, I like, uh, Katie's ride. He's got a good, he's got a good, good taste in cars. He's yeah. like, he's yeah. like a homeless Just tank. in general, his whole aesthetic is just on point. Yeah, I mean, other than the fact that he's a completely vile individual, <laughs> it's like that's the thing. It's like on the one hand, you're like, man, this guy is kind of a badass, but he's he's so despicable, you know, that you can't, you, you know, you can't see him as an antihero. So he, he's, no. he just pushes it far enough that you can't sympathize with him at all. Yeah, you're just like, man, this guy is awful. Um. Uh, <laughs> another little thing, speaking of Katie, uh, this shows up early on. He's got the, uh, the flashing nipple lighter. <laughs> I was like, that's, that's pretty sick. I like that a lot. Yeah. Um, I think we already kind of touched upon a lot of the goods. So the only good, and we have to address this at some point. I have it in my good, and I feel bad about having it in my good. But that rape scene is brutal. It's very brutal. Yes, and I don't 
I don't mean to trivial, trivialize this by having it in my good. I, I thought it was very effective is what I should say. Yes. <laughs> Obviously I'm not saying the rape scene was good. Right. Um, but I thought it was effectively absolutely animalistic and brutal and not to keep referencing Sons of the Lambs, which was a PS released the same year as this movie. What a fucking year. Um, did that it, it, maybe you won't agree, but did that cheek biting scene remind you when, so when Katie bites her cheek or whatever, and then it just cuts to the next scene, it reminded me so much of when Lecter is in that makeshift cage and they, the two cops come in to serve him dinner and he literally latches onto one of them. And like, he, it was so Lecter ish. I, I, I was like, I couldn't think of anything else. It, it just reminded me so much of Silence of the Lambs when he latches onto that cop's face. It, it, well, he's like, looks like he's making out with him. He's like biting his tongue out. Right. Yeah. It almost, makes, it almost makes you wonder if like in 1991, there was some collective unconscious uh, need to manifest these diabolical characters through cinema. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What? It, it's, it's wild. It, you know, we, Neither one of these movies was influenced by the other. It's impossible because they were released the same year and months apart. Um, but it's it's just it, Ted Demi and Scorsese were really tapping into some fucking crazy shit. Um, but yeah, I thought I thought that that whole scene is not it. It it takes a part of the original. The original has a similar scene. But yeah. being 1962, um, <laughs> it's, it's not anywhere near as brutal, obviously. Right. It's also um, not, uh, it, it's, it's not Sam Bowden's mistress. It's, it's just a, it's a prostitute or a, it, she's a drifter. I, I, it's hard, it's hard to pin down in the original, but. She's, yeah. just like, he's, she's just a drifter that he picks up in a bar. Similarly, oh. very similarly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they, again, upping the ante Scorsese took that scene, which is in the original and was, and just ramped it up to 11 in terms of, of how violent it was. Well, and I thought it was interesting too, when I was reading about um, the movie and about what the actors did to, uh, create a, a, a more, <clears throat> I wouldn't say nuanced, but to create more interesting sort of dynamics that the actress that played um, that, that role, let me look real quick. What was her name? I'm looking to, because I, I could not remember her name either. Um, Anyways, oh, Ileana Douglas. I was going to say, I thought it was Ileana, Ileana Douglas. But she had said that, you know, well, originally they wanted that entire scene to be from the get go, you know, tense and aggressive. But she apparently improvised in creating this this feeling that at first it was a playful thing and that she was in, like, it was almost like a kinky thing and she was along for the ride. And then it just like quickly, you know, turns to be like, Oh, this is not a game. Um, yeah. She improvised the laughing. Yeah. Which puts this, it makes it 
exponentially more terrifying. <laughs> right. Because you as the audience know what he's capable of. And you're watching someone who is about to learn how capable of, of brutality he is. And yeah. there's so much more skin crawling as an audience member to be like, to know what's about to happen. And you're like, literally like, get the fuck out of there, girl. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So so I wanted to tack that on the end of the good with a disclaimer, uh, because it's a hard scene to talk about. And it's the reason why, you know, the dude from the New Yorker called it a disgrace and an ugly and coherent dishonest piece of work. So, uh, right. whatever. Shall we move on to bad? Yeah, let's move on to bad. But is there how much I would be interested in, in hearing what you thought was bad? If there's any yeah, tidbitty stuff, um, nitpicky, picking nits, titty bitties, nitty pickies. Uh, <laughs> the dude. There's, I don't know if you noticed this. There's a dude waving a Confederate flag at the parade. Fuck that guy. Yeah, um, there's there's some things that I would say don't age well. That would be one of them for sure. <laughs> but I no, but I think I, I'm not sure that doesn't age well. I'm thinking Scorsese legitimately put that in there because it's to show how deep south this movie is. Possibly, yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know. I I, w- I would ask because I'm not really sure. Maybe you know where exactly is this supposed to take place? So, um, keeping up with the theme of watching just a bunch of shit with my mom, I watched this with my mom, and my mom every five seconds was like, "Where is this?" I was like, "Mom, it doesn't matter." Yeah. Um, so now it matters because she asked me, and I never came up with the answer. I couldn't tell. I don't. I, I don't know. I'm going to operate under the assumption that this is South Carolina. Somewhere is, thereabouts. South, some it, it's in the south. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure. We might be both fucking up, and it's it's very expressly somewhere, and we just don't know. I don't know. Um, the security at the school is pretty bad. This, <laughs> just yeah. like this dude. Also, I I suppose Sam Bowden is is obviously a bad dad, but wouldn't you like keep? like let the school know that this individual is kind of terrorizing you and to keep a heads up. I don't know. It seems weird that he was allowed that he, I can't imagine uh, in today. Well, in today's culture, just sneaking onto a high school in, and then just acting as a teacher uh, and completely, it goes completely unnoticed. <laughs> right. Um, Katie's monologue at the end where he plays the judge and the lawyer, he plays like two roles and he sentences Bowden to the ninth circle of hell is like too much for me. It's, it's too much. I mean, it's doing too much. I, I didn't, I, I literally laughed when he was going through it. It was, it was a lot. Um, yeah. And to piggyback off of that, the supernatural, like unkillable persona that Scorsese gives Katie, like, He's literally not able to be killed. I, I don't know where that came from. It gets to the point where they keep, they keep like getting rid of him and he keeps coming back to where you're like almost exhausted by it. You're like, all right, like <laughs> a boiling pot of water was thrown in his face. You're just like, whatever. I guess he's, he's in- <laughs> yeah, he's set on fire. He's set on fucking fire. It, he, yeah. has, he has a rock smashed onto his head. Everything from the houseboat on, he is too much. It's doing too much. He, he's 
he's like given almost like a, uh, I, I guess it, I guess it kind of ties in with the biblical nature of the movie and his character, but he's given almost like this supernatural quality. That's it's, uh, unflappable. Like, I, I don't even know how to describe it. It's so ridiculous though. Um, I think from the houseboat on, it's too ridiculous. It, it's just too much. Um, although I love it, I, I love it. But if, yeah, if, I, I, was, I was gonna say I like how just how the houseboat just disintegrates. It, yeah, you know, it, yeah. Just, it just gets like mangled. It almost by like water. implodes in on itself. <laughs> yeah. That's that, that's great, but yes. Otherwise, it does seem like they kind of draw that ending out a little too much. It's a it's a lot, and you've already gone through so much emotional trauma. It's just like you're you're exhausted. Um, that's all my bad though. I didn't really have anything else. What do you have? I would say one bad thing. It's pretty obvious when there's the scene earlier on in the movie when Katie's sitting atop that brick wall in the yard and there's the fireworks behind him that, that he's sitting in front of a blue screen. Beautifully shot, by the way. <laughs> I love that shot. It's, I, I love, it's, it's insane. It's great. But you, you can tell that, you know, he's sitting in front of a blue screen or there, there, there you know, there's something going on there where he's, he's not, he's not in that plane that they're trying to represent. I, uh, that's in my questionable to delve into that a little further, but yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. That was like the main thing. Otherwise I don't, I don't have a lot of bad. We're being I, nitpicky. I mean, at this point we're, we're literally just like, uh, you know, the stuff that's on my bad list is not even, it didn't take me out of it and it's not even necessarily bad. It's just trying to come up with bad for this category. Yeah. So, but maybe questionable is where we can kind of hash out more um, questions that we had. So, sure. I'm sure he came to the same conclusion. And I think the original, the original version of this effectively goes about doing this by not having Bowden be the defender, um, the defendant, or uh, not the defendant, the public defender is what I'm saying. Uh, he is a bystander. So my question is the report that was buried found that the victim of the original rape case that Katie was convicted for 14 years was promiscuous. Right. Yeah. So that is definitely a questionable one. Like how would, how would that sway the jury necessarily? Yeah. I, I, well, so obviously he's unhinged. So like, but I guess I suppose his whole his whole thing is you buried you buried evidence you buried even the smallest evidence it could have helped. Um, but yeah, that's real. I, uh, that wouldn't have helped. Uh, the fact that this this young lady was promiscuous. I mean, I don't know. Courts are pretty pretty fucking biased shitholes. Right. <laughs> Maybe and, it would have Maybe and, that, and that would have been in the late 70s. And again, you know, depending on what part of what region of the country this was in. In sure. the deep south. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It may, it may have. It may possibly. have. 
but I thought that was a bit of a, you know, that was a bit of a stretch. I kept well. asking myself, I was like, really, this is the evidence that's buried. If you're going to update the original, cause the original doesn't have this idea, mm-hmm. then have it, have him bury something substantial, substantial. Exactly. But I also understand the idea that if it was substantial, then you make Katie that much more innocent. And he's, he is not an innocent party in any of this. So you don't want to do that. So I, I, that's, I suppose that's a rock in the hard corner kind of thing. And that was one of those aspects where I was kind of second guessing myself. I was like, maybe I missed some part of the details of the evidence being buried. Cause I'm like, that to me didn't seem like enough. That's yeah. all they mention. Yeah. So that is questionable for sure. What, and this goes into what you were saying with the, um, with the fireworks scene. I, I just put, what the hell is going on with the shot composition in this movie? I don't understand what the sky is doing. It's orange and it's like lava lampy in one shot. And there's like clouds rolling in hard in another one. Um, it's lit up like beautifully with, with stars in another. And I put, looks like a green screen effect. So maybe you're just on to, you're, you were already ahead of that. It, what, what the fuck was going on? Like, they just green screened the sky a bunch? I, I, that's weird. Are we, again, are we referencing what I just talked about with the, uh, with the fireworks? Or you're saying in general? That, that the fireworks scene, but also I'm referencing like five other shots that I was like, what the hell is this? It's, it's, it, reminded, <laughs> it reminded me of the Black Hole Sun video. I was like, what the hell is going on here? Like it was like black hole sunny. It was so weird. It was like a, an, an effect that just like roll, the the sky is like rollo, rolling over the rest of the picture in like a fast forward motion and in a, like a super fake composition emotion. It, it was strange. I honestly didn't notice that, but hey, the nineties. What can I say? Nineties were wild, man. Scorsese was. Yeah, <laughs> whatever. I, I didn't um, notice that aspect, but that's interesting. You find that out. Not just the, yeah, no, it was not just the Fourth of July. No, sitting in a bunch of shots. Um, can you survive strapped underneath a car for uh, like a ten-hour drive? Oh shit! Yes, thank you for bringing that up. I and I had that somewhere as well. I yeah, big questionable. You would think that the it's heat not the original, by the way. They added that scene. The heat from the undercarriage, you think, would, from the exhaust, would have... Or just being that close to the ground going 70 miles an hour? That as well. That, yeah, that's, that's and, that, and that ties into, again, what you were saying about giving Katie this, this superhuman yes. aspect where he's, <laughs> he's not only like, you know, he has superhuman strength to a certain extent, but he's also able to withstand, you know, this high degree of abuse that does not seem realistic. Now I, I love that. I love that they added that, but it is fucking bonkers. <laughs> It's so weird. I love when he unstraps himself and that old lady is looking at him like some some dude like unstrapped himself from the carriage of this car is like dusting himself off. It's also 
the in the simpsons i that scene in the simpsons is so good when he just he unstraps himself and then they have like a cavalcade of things happen to him like this parade is marching by and like an elephant steps on his head and stuff like they do such a good job with the parody but yeah i i love i love that scene but it is highly suspect yeah an extension of that questionability you would think that if there was a witness to him unstrapping himself under a car and he I, I'm, I'm assuming that woman saw his family get out. You would, you would think that they would say something. I know I would. I'd be yeah. like, you know that? I, I don't know. Maybe you just got a weird relative that likes to go for the ride, you know, under a vehicle. But this, <laughs> this seems awfully suspicious, you know. So maybe he killed that old lady. <laughs> yeah, she's dead. Un, unanswered question. This is the biggest one of the entire movie. Is Katie dead? That's true. Yeah, you, you don't really know. He just sinks to the bottom and, and but he's not, yeah, he, he it, it does not give you an indication that he has died. It just gives you the indication that he has sunk below the water and he is, he has drifted off to some other location. But for all intents and purposes, yeah, I feel like they are telling you that he's, he could come back. That this is not over. Well, then they raise the score up, like bum 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 bum, like that evil. That you don't you don't end with the menacing score <laughs> if there's you know a distinct unless there is a distinct possibility that he did not die. But obviously, we're not we're not left to uh, know or understand whether or not he is dead. But mm-hmm. um, I like to think he's not. In the um, again, I just I, I led with this, and I'm doing the opposite of what I said. But in the original, he is definitively not dead. But Sam Sam Bowden says, "I want to see you in a cage for the rest of your life." He like has him completely apprehended, and and it's of the idea that he will be going to prison. So yeah, there you go. Um, any questions from you? I believe that's it. The the under the car thing was the like the biggest. Uh, I couldn't type that into my phone fast enough. <laughs> that that was that was well, the main one. And honestly, I had forgotten the aspect that he is strapped on by his belt. Up until that point, I was you know just thinking, wow, like how is he able to hold on to the undercarriage of that car for that long? Nobody can do that. But then they show him like. Uh, unbuckle the belt but still yeah he does look he does look properly disheveled for what it's worth (laughs) he does look like somebody that was on the undercarriage of a car for however many hours yes (laughs) shall we move on to um our awards and various categories section yes let's do it do we want to lead off? I'll, I'll leave it up to, well, let, let's just leave, let's, let's lead off with quotes. There's a lot, a lot of quotable quotes in this for sure. Absolutely. Um, a lot of singers. What are your, what's your, what are your favorites? There is the scene where it's, it's Bowden and Robert Mitchum's character and they're, in the uh, room where the, it's the, uh, you know, it's the one-way glass 
And Robert Mitchum's character says, I don't know whether to look at him or read him. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. He's, he's, you know, he's bestrewn with, with quotations all throughout his, his body. That, that one's, that one was actually on my list as well. Um, Robert Mitchum has a great quote, which is, well, pardon me all over the place. <laughs> yeah, that was good. <laughs> that one, that one's like one of my favorite ones. Um, <laughs> I mean, obviously Katie has the best ones. Do I look destitute to you? <laughs> I love that one. I don't know why I love that yeah. one so much. Um, and this, this all. Go ahead. I was going to say, this all goes back to when we were talking about cliffhanger, you know, a good bad guy has the best lines in any, yep. in any movie. The bad guy is going to have the best one-liners. It's and, true. And this right here is a testament to that, this movie. But anyways, go ahead. I was going to say... It- <laughs> This quote is so crazy. I had to put like my subtitles on because I was like, did he say what I think he said? He said, because I ain't your porch baby, Bill. Because <laughs> I ain't your porch baby buddy. What the fuck is that? Porch baby buddy? Porch baby buddy. <laughs> that one's so good. Because I ain't your porch baby buddy. Yeah. Um, and he's got that like smooth, slow as molasses uh, uh, accent that really just accents these uh, quotes even better. Right. Another Katie quote, there's not a whole whole lot left to do in prison, but desecrate the flesh. Ooh, damn. Yeah, yeah that's, that's good. A, that's a good one. That's real good. Uh, maybe I'm the big bad wolf. You can kind of go on and on with him. He has a lot. <laughs> you have one that stands out to you to the point where you, you would say this is the best one? Um. No, I mean, not not just a bunch of banger quotes, but nothing that was like that. Uh, to be honest, I would give I would give Mitchum the well, pardon me, all over the place. That one's <laughs> like one of my favorite ones. I would probably give it if I were to give my favorite quote. That would be it. I had this written down. Maybe you might have had this somewhere. I didn't fully write it. Maybe you can complete it, but there was at one point where Katie saw about his time is in prison and he, he mentioned something about being sodomized by four white guys. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. 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 You know, the rest of that quote. I don't remember. We can take a, <laughs> I mean, we could take a TV timeout and I could look it up. Um, Hold on, let's see. I'm open to some sort of discussion. Well, the back and forth is I'm open to some sort of discussion on compensation. What shall be my compensation, sir, for being held down and sodomized by four white guys or four black guys? Shall my compensation be the same? Yeah, that one. 
<laughs> Dear God. Yeah, that's uh, that's brutal. That's ill. Lots of good ones, though. Um, I'm going to give it to Robert Mitchum for that one. I don't know if you want to throw another one in there, but no, I think okay. I've got I've got mine all all in there. Did you spot yourself a dick? This is our Dick Miller Award for best bit performance. Uh, someone that's doing a lot with a little. Um, who do you have? I was having trouble with this one. I feel like I've been having I've been having issues with this category lately. For me, I because I wanted to use Joe Don Baker, but I feel like he was in the movie a little too much. No, Dude. I like that. He's he's really not. I, I I think that's a great. I think that's a great one. But for me, this is the thing. Not to jump ahead too much, but to me, it's it was kind of a it was a, a two for. If we get into the Harry Dean Stanton replacement, it would be Joe Don Baker for both. But that's what I had. Your dick and Harry Dean Stanton or Joe Don Baker? Because I love that idea. <laughs> that was the best I could work with on this one because otherwise. You know, what are we going to say? We can't really, there's so many classic actors that have reprised roles in this. that it's, it's, it's hard to, you know, utilize them or swap them out, you know, in, in the way we do with like maybe some other movies for, you know, this category. So, I mean, you know, I you agree. Know, can I say yeah. Robert Mitchum? I don't know. <sighs> I'm going to say Joe Don Baker. So, Okay. You really made me think there, though, for a sec. Um, I think you will love mine. I say this every time. <laughs> I always but do. I really put some effort into this one. Ileana Douglas um, gets the Dick Miller Award. Um, I, I think she's in Six Feet Under. She's in Goodfellas. She's in Stir of Echoes. She's in Alive. She's in a lot of shit. Um, and she doesn't have a main role component in any of it. She's a bit performer throughout. Yeah. Um, and so I'm glad. Go ahead. I'm going to say, yes, I'm glad that you picked, picked her out. That was, I, it was a thought that I had, but honestly, until you mentioned some of those roles right now, I was like, I know I've seen her in other things. And Which is classic. Her, yeah. It's classic to this category this award i should say we're giving it to i think maybe a lot of people may see dick miller and if they're not uh, freaks like us they would be like i think i know that guy sure um, but it's definitely i think i know that person in but i could never place them in anything um she's so six feet under to me though that i'm i don't i'm not like that's the cape fear girl i'm like that's the six feet under girl but it, obviously scorsese also used her in goodfellas and she's in that <laughs> Kevin Bacon Stir of Echoes. Well, and I was going to say, I honestly completely forgot she was in Goodfellows, and I haven't seen Stir of Echoes in so long that, like, that I, didn't, even, I didn't even remember that until I looked it up. So. That wouldn't have even entered onto my radar. I'm pretty sure I saw, no. Did I see Stir of Echoes in the theater? I saw, dude, no, I want to say maybe I saw it, but I'm, uh, I might also be mistaking it with Hollow Man. I don't remember. I don't know if you remember that Kevin Bacon. <laughs> I did see that in theaters. I yeah. did too. <laughs> It uh it was bad. Um that's a good one. Yes. I, I'm I'm with you on there. Uh like our I first said, female dick, I should say. No. I, no, it wasn't. No, I said Shay Miller or Shay. I'm uh, sorry. 
Uh, Lynn Shea. Lynn Shea was. Yep. T- You're, Shea right. Miller. You're right. Lynn, I said Lynn Shea on the first episode. So Lynn Shea is our first dick. Mm-hmm. Ileana Douglas, second, second dick. Second dick. Wonderful. Thank you equal, for correcting equal, I, equal I, opportunity dicks on this we show. We are. We are. <laughs> Harry Dean Stanton Award. It's less of an award and more of who would you replace in this movie with Harry Dean Stanton? You said Joe Don Baker. I also said Joe Don Baker. Yeah. I mean, really, I feel like this is kind of a, a no brainer with that one. Follow me on this logic. So you have mm-hmm. two Joe Don Bakers. Mm-hmm. What if I had two Ileana Douglases? What if Harry Dean Staten was Ileana Douglas? You do away with the rape scene, and maybe he's a close uh, compatriot with Sam yeah. Bowden. Yeah. Maybe he works with him in the courthouse in a similar fashion. You don't have the illicit affair, um, but maybe they're super tight bros, and you watch Harry Dean get just fucking eviscerated by, uh, um, by Katie in a non- sexual way see and i and i like this approach that i noticed you've been taking with this particular category because this isn't the first time gender swapping (laughs) where you gender swapped uh a role where it's a role played by a female in the original uh respect and it's i'm the nancy reagan of this podcast and i'm trying to get rid of illicit (laughs) sexual (laughs) illicit sexual scenes on this on this podcast i am the nancy reagan placing harry dean stanton in every sexual role that there is (laughs) i like that i like that it's 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 a good thought experiment and yes it's but when it's Joe Don Baker, <laughs> I'm, I'm with you. We have a we have a double Joe Don Bakers on that. Our next category, um, directorial trifecta, where we take the director of the film we're talking about and we try to pinpoint their best three movies in a row. They have to be back to back to back. Which makes this ever more difficult. See, I didn't even really give any of this, this any thought because I love Scorsese. I'm I'm a big Scorsese guy, so I just really didn't even think about it. <laughs> but you tell me what you well, thought. Well, I was going to say this is one of the hardest ones I think we'll ever do because <laughs> we're tar- we're talking about Martin fucking Scorsese. It, it's it's not it's not easy right not to mention his filmography is nutter butter in terms of there's stuff in between his he will have bangers that he's dropping and then there's just movies that i have not seen in between frankly yeah so the closest i could do and it's a it's cheating which sometimes you have to do with this category is um, Color of Money. Uh, I fucking love Paul Newman so much. Color of Money, Goodfellas, Cape Fear. What I'm jumping over is The Last Temptation of Christ, which comes between Color of Money and Goodfellas. But if you take Last Temptation of Christ out of this, which I've not seen, so that's the only reason I, I can't talk about it, 1986, Color of Money, 1990, Goodfellas, 1991, Cape Fear. That might be one of the the best trifectas that we'll ever come across. Um, 
can't really, there's not anything else in his filmography where I can make connections like that. Well, for me, then I would have to do some jumping over to you uh, because there is a crucial gap I have in terms of my Martin Scorsese knowledge that again, I, I don't want people, if anybody calls in or emails us to call me out for this. But I would love if they called in. Wouldn't they just call our cell phones and say how much we suck? That'd be tight. Yes, I would love that. <laughs> My direct, directorial trifecta would have to be, and again, skipping over one movie, would be Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, and The King of Comedy. <laughs> skipping over New York, New York, which I know is a pretty crucial Scorsese film to have in your your bank of knowledge. And I honestly have not seen it. So there you go. Is it? Cause I've never even heard of it. So I don't yeah. know. Yeah. New York, New York came out right after taxi driver and I still get to watch it, but that would be my trifecta for sure. Um, the idea of New York, New or I'm sorry. The idea of taxi driver and raging bull being that close is, is, uh, is, uh, tantalizing. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. And then, like I said, I tacked on on the end of it, which I can't remember if we've had this discussion about this movie yet. The King of Comedy, which to me, the King of Comedy is the ultimate Scorsese sleeper hit, in my opinion. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen it before. I've but also not seen it. Um, it's like his attempt at like a black comedy, like like a dark comedy, I should say. Precisely. And <laughs> the Joker, the, the uh, Todd Phillips Joker, uh, references that movie in particular. Oh, okay. Well, obviously De Niro is in both of those. Yeah, and The King of Comedy to me is such a great, great movie. And Damn. Okay. I, I I highly recommend. You know, if you if you want to be a true Scorsese head, you, you check it out because it I don't, but I'll still check it out. Yes. <laughs> The, the, um, the premise of that movie, I'll say this. Um, you've seen Joker, right? Yes. Okay, you know how it, in, in Joker, he gets asked to come on to that late night television show that's hosted yeah. by Robert De Niro. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's based on this opportunity for this, this individual who's pretty disillusioned to have his time to shine. That idea is... is is explored in the King of Comedy, where it's huh. the, it's the flip side where De Niro is this struggling, aspiring comic who just can't get he can't he can't get a break. Yeah, and he comes up with this harebrained, crazy plan to kidnap the host of his of this late night television show, which is played by Jerry Lewis. So he kidnaps yeah, it's very Jerry. Reminiscent. It's very similar. That's yeah, crazy. He, he kidnaps Jerry Lewis to basically use as leverage to get onto his his, his television show, and to, you know to finally to to do his routine in front of you know the American audience. And that's wild. Yeah. yeah. So conceptually, did all of the late night hosts? idea and in, in joker come from that i think so yeah wow 
That's incredible. Wow. I did not know that. So that's, that's a a great trifecta. You said you were like, I didn't put much thought into this. (laughs) And then you, you knocked it out of the park, but well, because I mean, I, I just, I like pretty much everything I watch from Scorsese. There's not really anything that I've watched that I didn't like, but there's things that I haven't seen yet that are pretty crucial. Yeah. That's what I was shocked by. There was a lot in his filmography that was like, not only have I not seen this, I've never even heard of it. So, yeah. So there you go. Um, That's mine. Wonderful. Let's go down a wiki wormhole and wrap this bitch up. How do how do you feel about that? Lovely, because I got to piss like a Russian racehorse. <laughs> Let's do it. Um, body count, which we lead off our wiki wormhole with now. Two people, which is insane for the, how violent this movie is. Three people, if you believe Katie is dead, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, and the one dog, R.I.P. Um, <laughs> this is this is the seventh collaboration between Scorsese and De Niro out of a total of ten collaborations between the two. They tight bros. They're real tight. This was Gregory Peck's last movie. Yes, um, it was. Which is which is nice for his career to end on end on that. I wanted to also talk about that yeah. a little bit. I, I feel like I don't know how intentional this was, but I wonder. If Gregory Gregory Peck playing the role of the Southern lawyer, if there was an, any intentionality to tie that to his role in To Kill a Mockingbird, where I he thought, also played the Southern lawyer. Yeah, you know, similarly, I, I'm not sure what if there's any connection or if it's just a, a just complete uh, coincidence. I have yeah. no idea. But I also I, I thought similar things. I did. Yeah. Um, originally, this was supposed to be directed by Steven Spielberg. Yeah. Uh, who decided to hand it over to Scorsese and stayed on as an uncredited producer. Yeah, because he thought it was too violent. Womp womp. I, it, it made me think, what does Scorsese, or I'm sorry, what does Spielberg's Cape Fear look like? Yeah. <laughs> I think that silence is enough. I think I think neither one of us could even fucking think about what that Well, that I, I feel like when we were touching upon the the complexity of the character development and the ambiguity the moral ambiguity of Sam Bowden in particular and the dysfunctional family aspect, that would not be that would not be present. And I'm sure you're probably gonna say something about this, but I'll just interject by no, go ahead by, by pointing out that Originally, Scorsese, he, he kept kind of balking at the at the script, particularly because he didn't like the fact that the Bowdens were a happy family. So he wrote it so that they were a dysfunctional family, essentially. Which is a key component. It really does drive the... He, Spielberg's Cape Fear would suck. I mean... Nah, it wouldn't be cool. It would not be. No diss on Spielberg. I like Spielberg. You no, know, no, not, and, not, none at all, which is interesting. So it, because of this connection, Spielberg went on to direct Schindler's List, which Scorsese originally declined doing. So it was a good swap. I'd rather have Schindler, I, I would rather have Spielberg Schindler's List and Scorsese's Cape Fear than vice versa. Absolutely. Scorsese's Schindler's List would look like either. I think both are weird. I don't, I don't want to see that either. No, we're, we're all the better for that. Swap in. What we did what we did miss out on is that would have been his first time working with De Niro. And I did not do any further research to know if Spielberg ever 
worked with De Niro ever again. I don't, I'm not sure, but I can't think off the top of my head if he ever did. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think so. Because of that, and this was one of the shot compositions that I was referencing, there's a shot where the, they just have the starry, starry night kind of shot. And there's a shooting star that goes across the sky. That was Scorsese's nod to Spielberg. So, Oh, I see. I didn't know that. That's adorable, adorable little. Yeah. Thing. So it's very sweet. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Spielberg wanted Bill Murray to play Katie. <laughs> that I got such a chuckle out of reading that. Cause I cannot see that in any way, but it's in my head when I was picturing it, it just kind of laughed. <laughs> what? The fuck does that look like? What the fuck does that look like? Does he have the tattoos? Is he ripped? I have so many questions. I have more questions than answers. Well, I'm wondering if in that thought process, the best I could come up with with him visualizing that would be um, Bill Murray's role in Where the Buffalo Roam. I suppose, but yeah, that's, that's very good. You know what I mean? Yes. Where he, he's, you know, he plays his loose cannon, obviously referencing uh, Hunter S. Thompson and that, but otherwise I can't see anything like, okay. Yes. Bill Murray has a penchant for playing loose cannon, quirky characters. But it's um, always in the comedic fashion. It's, it's always never comedic. Dark. It's never dark. I've never seen him in any w- way play a convincing villain that I can think of. What does, <laughs> I'm not trying to laugh about this. What does that rape scene look like? <laughs> I know, right? What the fuck, man? <laughs> that is so <laughs> weird. That is so weird. Yeah, um, I'd, be, I'd be so bummed out thinking it about would ruin, It would have ruined anybody. his career. It would have ruined his career. I don't think we get anything else. Post 1991, he would have just disappeared. Yeah, so uh, good. <laughs> Dodged a bullet with that one. Other casting uh, uh, questions that may have occurred. Scorsese wanted Harrison Ford for Sam Bowden. Yeah. Um, but Ford was only interested in playing Katie. What do we get with a Harrison Ford Katie? Another Another casting choice that I can't visualize cannot in this lifetime or another lifetime visualize either no it's better than bill murray but i still have uh more questions than answers that is that is a crazy choice maybe a sam bowden i I could see that i could see him tapping into that um but definitely definitely far better than katie (laughs) i think nick nolte though I, i i you know that that works out. That works out. I think the casting as it is, I have no problems whatsoever. I wouldn't change anybody. Yeah. And that's what makes it so hard to visualize. Drew mm-hmm. Barrymore and Reese Witherspoon both auditioned for the role of Danielle. Both bombed their auditions, apparently. Barrymore went as far as to say it was quote, the biggest disaster of her life. (laughs) Reese Witherspoon said it was her second audition ever. She didn't know who Scorsese or Robert De Niro were. And then when she got in the room, she she realized last second who Robert De Niro was um, and froze. Let's not hold it against Reese Witherspoon. She was like 14 when that audition happened. 
Oh, really? She was really young. Yeah. And that would have been super weird because when I did the math, I believe that Juliet Lewis was 18. So I did the same math, but that it, it, it was flawed math. Okay. She was like 17, I think, when this movie shot. She was 14 when she auditioned. So obviously auditions happen well before the actual shooting of the movie when you're casting and whatnot. Um, so she's a similar age to Reese Witherspoon, but I read that Juliette Lewis was 14 when she auditioned and she made De Niro super uncomfortable for whatever reason, Robert De Niro was in charge of casting the Danielle role, uh, probably for chemistry reasons. And when he auditioned with Juliette Lewis, he was legitimately like very creeped out. <laughs> right. Cause she did such a good job and she like, she delivered this weird sexual angle that uh, Reese Witherspoon and Drew Barrymore didn't have. And, and I could definitely see Reese Witherspoon not being able to deliver in those regards. Drew Barrymore a little bit more. So I could see, cause she, I feel like she was more um, uh, precocious you know, yeah. she she had she had already had a pretty long acting career under her belt, young actress career. Um, so out of the two between Drew Barrymore and Reese Witherspoon, I could definitely see it more going towards Drew Barrymore. I agree. <laughs> Some fast facts in terms of De Niro, because he really just um he really just pushed it to the limit doing this role. <laughs> He fanatically worked out, dropped down to 4% body fat for the role. He paid $5,000 to have his teeth ground down to look more menacing. Turned around after shooting, paid $25,000 more to have his teeth restored. That little tidbit to me when I read that was fucking crazy. <laughs> does My original thought was, does he do this for every role? How insane. Yeah, I feel like in that regard, De Niro is, you know, in this tradition, similar to, say, like Christian Bale, where they engage in this extreme method. It's very Baelish. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this extreme uh, method method strategy to get in the character. It's so weird. It, it, it It's it's not weird. It's uh, it's. It's amazing. I it's love amazing. It. Yeah, it is. Yeah. The fingers when she when Juliet Lewis sucks uh De Niro's finger in that the finger sucking scene at the school. <laughs> totally ad-libbed. Yeah. She did it just totally ad-lib. That shot that scene in that entire scene was shot three times and they used the first they used the first take. Okay. Unbelievable. Believable. That whole, and the, not only was that the thumb sucking or finger sucking scene ad libbed, their back and forth was almost 100% ad libbed. They didn't, almost didn't have any lines there. Yeah. She was working off what De Niro was giving her. Yeah. For a teenager, is incredible. Um, Juliet Lewis was not in my good, but she deserves to be in my good because she was all phenomenal in this. Um, yeah, and she does a really good job also, I feel, of playing this 
I don't know. It's like she's kind of an airhead. She's kind of like dingy, but at the same time, uh, yeah, I don't know. That was one thing that I thought that was interesting where she's, she plays kind of like this, like kind of absent minded teenager. And she's like, <laughs> she's like, <laughs> she's got his, she's got Katie's back, like the whole movie, which is like creepy. Like when her parents are like, setting up the trap and stuff she's like she's almost like kind of like you know she comes downstairs almost to get a sandwich and we're like oh you're you're tra- you're trapping my dude katie i i feel uncomfortable about this i'm gonna be in my room let you adults do this weird shit well, yeah like joe john baker is like chugging whiskey and pepto like it's just <laughs> it's so weird um do you have anything i have like one more i guess and um the screenwriter for this, Wesley Strick, he wrote he wrote this and he adapted it from the original. He also uh, went on to write Arachnophobia, Batman Returns, and was asked to write the reboot of Nightmare on Elm Street in 2010, which sucked so badly. I'm not saying his his uh, script sucked, but he was asked to reboot it, um, and that was this an is, abject failure. This is where I answer the toilet flush sound. Yeah. Uh, Dumb. Yeah, that's uh, Huck's balls. Yeah. Um, what else do you have? Do you have anything else to add to this? Uh, there was a lot of really cool shit about this movie. Yeah, there, I, I definitely had to be fairly limited in, in what I put in my list, but I knew that we would have some overlap. But I will add a couple other things to what you had already stated. Wonderful. So going out to uh, any of any of the design nerds listening, me being one of those. Uh, individuals. The opening credits is by Saul Bass. And Saul Bass uh, was a legendary designer and uh, he also utilized his craft with a lot of film in terms of opening credits and using uh, um, his his imagery and type work is used a lot in in movies in the 50s and 60s. And he was also a uh, corporate designer alongside of that so that's a that's a a little tidbit there he he worked with hitchcock quite a bit oh did he okay yeah so if you if you look up saul bass and you see what he's done you're like oh of course he is a very distinct style that's that was used a lot um so that was very cool and i also wanted to add that when we kind of talked about this earlier this is a very literary, uh, in terms of references, a very literary movie. Um, there's references to Thomas Wolfe, Frederick Nietzsche, Henry Miller, The Book of Job, and Dante throughout this mm-hmm. movie. So mm-hmm. I, was, I thought that was very cool. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, and then I think, what else do I have? Oh, we talked about this earlier, but I kind of wanted to talk a little bit more, especially since, you know, I love wrestling but I feel like you're more tapped into wrestling uh, than I am. Cause I kind of, I'm, I'm an eighties to early nineties wrestling guy. And I kind of checked out after that. So, sure. but you talked a little bit about the uh, influence of the Katie character on the development of res- wrestlers and res- wrestling personas, heel yeah. per heel personas in the nineties. Yeah. I thought yeah. that was super cool. Yeah, specifically Bray Wyatt, the, the Bray Wyatt character who's who just lost his belt uh, to. <laughs> I don't want to get into all this, but he just lost his, his belt to Goldberg of all people. <laughs> uh, 
Um, he was champion. Anyway, his whole persona is like uh, these these light flowing Hawaiian shirts and uh, stupid hats. Uh, but like the brutality of his wrestling is uh, is is a dichotomy, you know, that opposes that. So he's very yes, he's very Max Katie. And that's very cool. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's all I got in those in, in that category. Well, let's um, let's rate this bad boy. Um, I'll let you go first in terms of a midnight movie. Where does this land on the clock? I'm going to go ahead and say this is an eleven o'clock. I went the opposite direction. I said one a.m. <laughs> Oh, you put it I, over the midnight. I think with the I think if you were if you were to air it in its original format with the the rape the rape scene intact and the cheek biting, um, I, I just think and the overall the just the overall skin crawling nature of the of the fourteen year old with the grown ass uh, recently incarcerated individual is I think I though I think it's beyond a midnight movie. I think this would never air on television. I think it would be relegated to HBO Showtime Cinemax and it would air late. That's interesting because I guess, you know, and obviously we keep fleshing this out more and more as we go through uh episode to episode. But to me like a midnight movie designation and beyond really calls for a lot more gore, a lot more you know, gross weirdness, things that would tilt a movie more into the cult status. Whereas like this movie, it does have a lot of those very taboo aspects to it, but it still resides in this kind of world of being a a respectable movie. I feel like it's a respectable piece of cinema you know, by a well-known director and has an all-star cast. So in those regards, I could see it still not surpassing or, you know, being in that midnight movie realm. Whereas like a midnight movie to me is like, you know, a crazy, you know, off the wall kind of thing. And that's why in previous episodes, I said like Halloween three, it's like, the you know, it's got a really bananas present uh, premise to it and it has all of this weird gore and, you know, things like that. So I guess that's where I would, um, I hear you be, you know, um, uh, as far as my assessment would be kind of diametrical a little bit to what you're saying. saying. I totally hear you. Yeah, I think where I diverge is where horror movies can have that, like if someone gets decapitated and just like um, ketchup packets are kind of like squirting out of the neck hole, like that sort of stuff I'm like detached from because it's not realistic. Right. The portrayals of what's going on in this movie are so realistic, grounded in reality that yeah. it's so much more terrifying. It's like how Freddy Krueger doesn't, you know, scare me. But like Ted Bundy is terrifying. Sure. So I'm thinking less of what is permissible necessarily on TV because people like, you know, rating systems don't want the blood to be red or whatever and uh, and whatnot. But something like this is is truly unnerving and brutal. And I, I feel like so much more, um, I don't know, 
like dark in terms of its in, in terms of its source material. Whereas like Halloween three is fun to me. <laughs> totally. But yeah. I, I hear what you're saying. And I hear what you're saying. So perfect. Same page. There we go. We've, we've got, we've got, a, we've got a, I was going to say, we've got a synthesis and, or we've got a, a thesis and an, an, an antithesis yes. to create a synthesis. We do. And All right. We're right here in the middle. All right. Anyways. Okay. I picked out of how many fat stogies <laughs> fat smoking, interrupting a movie stogies. Do you give this thing out of five? It's pretty close to five. I mean, you know, I would, are we really trying to steer away from the, um, the half category? No, I'm not at all. I, I actually encourage you to use the half uh, sparingly and often if you need to. <laughs> so would it be appropriate to give this a, a four, four closely leaning into four and a half? Or well, that would be generous? four unlit stogies and one that's been smoked down to the nub. <laughs> to the nub. So I hear you on that. Or, or we could give it... Um, Four Hawaiian shirts, <laughs> four four captains hats. Yes, <laughs> uh, there you go. So yeah, four. We're gonna, we're gonna, uh, well, the um, nice thing about a stogie is once it gets smoked down, you get a half. You can't. You don't have a half of a Hawaiian shirt um, or a hat, uh, a captain's hat. Uh, <laughs> so you you have four, four and a half. Bur- you know the the half is is smoking and has been smoked. Um, fantastic I absolutely adore this movie it's why I picked it I'm giving it the perfect 5 out of 5 stogies I I do not do this I'm not the kind of person that hands out my perfect scores this is the it, this is in even with my problems with the end uh, and how unkillable he is it is a romp that I love I love watching. Every time I revisit it, I'm blown away how about how great it is, how expertly it's shot, how expertly it's cast and just done in general. Five, five out of five stogies. These stogies are still in their plastic wrap. They're, they haven't even been smoked yet. They're pristine. They're, they're fresh. Cubans. Yes. Five out of five. Certif- certified fresh stogies right here. Certified fresh stogies from illegal Cuba. Yeah. Um, well, Adam, what is on the next episode? It is my time to pick. <laughs> yes, it is. I'm looking at our list here, that uh, my list that I sent you, and I have a couple in the queue after I submitted Halloween Three and Manhunter. And I don't know. I'm, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. We're gonna. We're gonna talk this out. Is okay. that cool? Yeah. I'm not going to give a decisive answer on this. And so next in the queue, I've got Streets of Fire and Phenomena. Of those two, which are you leaning towards more wanting to dive into? Streets of Fire, I've never seen. Phenomena, I've seen a bunch. Yeah. So So this is up to like something I'm seeing for the first time or something (laughs) that I have seen a bunch and would love to rewatch. Right. So you surprise me. Let me know. What, what do you want? You want something I've not seen? 
And that'd be a cool episode. Or do you want to talk about Phenomena, which would as our first Argento, and it would be a, a great intro into Argento for us. Let's um, let's throw caution to the wind, my friend. We're gonna go with Streets of Fire. I'm gonna go right down the list. Fuck yeah! Get you I'm excited. Get, get you on board with this. It's Walter Hill's um, early '80s movie. Which, funny enough. I know this wasn't recorded, but this is a early Willem Dafoe role playing a, <laughs> a fucking absolute creepy weirdo villain uh, right there. So well, then they, we have to go with that because that ties in nicely with where we began and where we've ended. Fantastic. Yeah, let's go with Streets of Fire. Wonderful. I look forward to it. Next time. <laughs> Well, this has been another deep dive into Midnight Movie Madness. Big thanks to Charlotte Blythe for providing our intro music. If you're a band looking to submit a song or a listener looking to submit a question, feel free to shoot us an email at midnightflixpod, F-L-I-X, at gmail.com, or hit us up on Instagram at midnightflixpod, again, F-L-I-X. For Adam Walker, I'm Pat Mitchell. See you on the other side. Later, dudes.